Father, we thank you so much for this evening. Uh, thank you for this time where we can get together and uh, study and look at um, uh, this magnificent um, last book of the Bible. Um, and we just uh, uh, want to come into it tonight um, uh, claiming the, the blessing <laughs> that it has, uh, that it tells us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Father, I pray that that would be uh, us tonight. Um, that that would be our mindset around uh, this book as we study it and we look at it. Um, that we would be uh, educated and also encouraged and convicted where appropriate. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week, uh, if you remember last week, we talked about, we were kind of started Revelation, but not really. I, I just wanted to go through um, some of the different interpretation styles, uh, different uh, uh, methods of interpretation, I should say, for the book of Revelation, so we wouldn't have to talk about them this week, and we could just talk about the book. So, uh, if you remember, what, do, does anyone who was here last week, and what are the four four methods of interpretation of the book of Revelation. Yeah, uh, the historicist, which is, what do they believe about Revelation? Symbolic of history. Yeah, symbolic of all of history. What else? What's another one? Preterism. Preterism, Preterism. what do they believe? Everything was fulfilled by AD 70. Yeah, everything was fulfilled by AD 70. What else? Idealism. Idealism, which is? Symbolically represents ongoing battle between God and Satan. No historical fulfillment. That's right. Good job. Um, very off the top of your head, it sounded great. Uh, and what's <laughs> That's the, out of your mouth, yeah. Josh. I wrote what, down exactly. What's what the other one? Futurism. Futurist. Yeah, the futurist, which believes what? Everything's in the future. Yeah, it's kind of it's coming in the future. That's future prophecy. Um, and then we talked about the different interpretations of the millennium. We talked about post-millennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism. And we so thoroughly discussed all those that we don't have to talk about them anymore or ever again. Um, anyway, uh, those, those were kind of the, so when we do these, there's like the interpretive challenges section. Those are the interpretive challenges of this book is, is figuring out that stuff and it takes a long time to go through and discuss all those things um, and there may be good to know little tidbits in the future uh, but today we're going to do more of the regular kind of Route 66 thing uh, and, and go through the basics of this book. So the title of this book is Revelation and where does that name come from? The Revelation of John. Yeah, the very first verse, the Revelation the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him uh, to show his sermon. So it's, it's the very first verse. It's one of the only books where you get to see the, the title right in the first line there. Um, so Revelation, uh, the author is, and we talked about this last week, John, but which John? The Apostle. Yeah, John the Apostle. And there are some... Uh, quite, quite a few arguments against this, actually. Um, mo most famous is the argument that there were uh, uh, two different Johns who served at the church in Ephesus, John the Apostle and John the Elder. Um, 
And they're both responsible for different uh, books uh, under the name John. Uh, so the Greek, and, and so, so the reasons for this uh, is because, and this is actually fairly popular to, to discount John the Apostle, because uh, one of the main reasons, or the best kind of reason that I think they have, would be that the Greek in the Gospel of John is, is a lot better Greek than, than what we read in Revelation. Um, but like, like a bunch of things, that, that can easily be because of a, uh, a amnuensis. Amnuensis? I was practicing. Yes. Yeah, I can't ever say that word. Um, I even, Chuck was in there today, I even put it on Google and like let it play so I could pronounce it right a couple times. But that was way earlier on in the day and you forgot to say it. So, so, yeah, I ate a cookie instead. Um, so, so it could be because of that or, or it could be just because um, uh, these are co two completely different kinds of, of literature. So, so one's apocalyptic prophecy um, and the other is, is uh, more of a, a narrative. Uh, so uh, there, there's like that's that's really not that big a, of a deal. But uh, and and to kind of back up the fact that it is the Apostle John, um, there are a lot of similarities actually in the Book of John and the Book of Revelation. It is uh, these are the only two books, the Gospel of John and uh, the Book of Revelation, where Jesus Christ is referred to as the Logos or the or the Word. In, in John 1, in the very beginning of John, John 1, 1 through 18, it calls him the Word a couple of times. Uh, John 1, 1. And then in Revelation 19, 13, in the second coming, we see that, uh, uh, that, uh, that it's written on, on him, on, on Christ. It's, it says the Word of God. Um, and what's cool, what's really cool, so if you have an understanding that it's the same John, it, uh, you read these two passages together. So he starts off his gospel talking about him as the word. And then Revelation 19, when he's returning. So the first advent, he's the word. The second advent, he is also the word. And he's coming back in different ways or for different, um, uh, different reasons. So, so that's really, I was thinking of reading those two passages together. But... To save time, we won't, but you should do it sometime because it's cool to think of that way. Um, so, uh, both John and Revelation, the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, use a lot of the same figures of speech, especially involving like water and springs and talking about Jesus as like the shepherd. Um, there's lots of contrast between light and darkness um, and, and truth and falsehood and, and that, that, the whole kind of antagonism thing, power of this world and the, the power of God. Um, they both, uh, and, and here's a big one, they both commonly uh, use the number seven, uh, seven symbolically. Seven's important in the Gospel of John. You remember uh, John records seven signs, seven miracles. Uh, he has a seven-day-long uh, opening ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and then there's the seven days in, in his passion narrative, too. Uh, John likes to use the number seven, and as you read through Revelation, you see seven uh, frequently. So, um, in fact, these similarities were, were enough to lead a lot of the people who don't believe that John is the that the Apostle John is the author uh, to still admit that their uh, their belief end up, ends up being something like, well, okay, he he wasn't the author of both, but rather there was some sort of Johannian 
school of writing that both of the Johns were, were involved in. And so they, they can't deny some of those. Um, and even though there are some uh, differences, again, in the, in the grammar in the Greek, uh, even, again, those who deny that the Apostle John was the author still admit that Revelation is closer to the Gospel of John in its language than any other book in the New Testament. So, um, it's, it, there's still a really close connection, which, again, doesn't prove relation, but uh, more so than any of the other authors of the New Testament. In fact, um, uh, it seems like the reason that many people were uh, kind of slow to accept it as part of the canon uh, really was just because of the genre, just because it was apocalyptic genre, and that wasn't, um, that was kind of, uh, popular, like the, the, the Apocalypse of Peter and some other stuff. Uh, it was like clearly that that's not scripture. And so they just kind of, they were kind of a little bit um, unwilling to accept it because of that. Um, and that, I think, it might be why it's so important uh, to note that um, actually the book of Revelation has more early attestation, attestation uh, from early writers that John is the apostle than any other New Testament book does of its author, um, which is... So, so that's, that's really uh, cool to see. Uh, Justin, Marta, Justin Martyr, um, uh, Melito of the Bishop of Sardis, Theophilus of Antioch, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Origen, and uh, Hippolytus, they all uh, wrote of John as the author of, of Revelation and the Apostle John. Uh, so it's, it is very well attested among early uh, church writings. So, uh, so it is uh, John the Apostle who, who wrote this book. He has been exiled uh, to Patmos, and we see in verse 9 of, um, uh, of Revelation 1, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this is, so, so he was there because of the word. So he's, he's been kind of imprisoned. Um, so essentially there, this is, so about, so John is the last living of the apostles. The rest of, ha, have been dead for, for actually quite some time by now. And, um, and so, so what was happening was you, you really couldn't put the apostles to death because that made more Christians. And you couldn't let them keep preaching because that also made more Christians. So they moved him to an island where you, there was no people for him to make into Christians. And so, so they, that, that kind of works well for them. But <laughs> little do they know, this is where, oh, good, now he's alone. So I can, so God can blast him with this, this revelation. Uh, so, so God was sovereignly ordained all of that. So the emperors of Rome had, just, they just, nothing they can, nothing they can do can stop the spread of Christianity. Um, so there's some, uh, there's some other early documents that we've seen that indicate that before he was put on the island, um, he was punished by the government of Rome by boiling him in oil. Um, so they boiled him in oil. So he is most likely in a uh, tremendous amount of, of pain, lots of scar tissue, um, uh, probably not a, a very pleasant looking guy. 
Um, and uh, one, one last thought that, that I just find interesting on John the Apostle, uh, when you think of him as the author, and I just think this is interesting, is that do, do you remember um, the uh, the nickname that, that Jesus gave to to him and him and his brother James? Sons of Thunder. Yeah, son, sons of Thunder. Um, and, and we're never really given a complete explanation for, for why uh, he, he's given that name, but we, we do see a little bit of it in that, that story from Luke 9, um, 51 through 56, where does anyone know that story? What, what happens there? He wants, they want to call down fire from heaven upon some town that rejected yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Some town reject, Jesus, rejected yeah. Jesus, and, and James and John asked Jesus, um, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and, and, and annihilate them? Um, and, and Jesus uh, rebukes them, and, and then they go on to the next village. That's how the, uh, Jesus rebuked them, and they go on to the next village. Um, so so kind, of, kind of from that, we kind of have an understanding that they had, they, they had like a little bit of righteous indignation and, um, and, and wanting, like, wanting to see justice done and people when, when Christ is rejected that did not sit well with them and I just think it's kind of cool that, that Jesus gave this revelation of his final judgment of, of, on uh, the, the, those who reject Christ to, to John in his old age and he could finally be like I, I knew there was a time and place for this I knew that I knew that was coming uh, but um, uh, so finally, towards the end of his life, John gets to see what it'll look like. And so, yeah, part of him is probably saying, like, yes, that's, that's right. But, but part of him, as, he's, as the vision unfolds, is like, I did not know what I was talking about. Because <laughs> this is serious. Um, all right, so, so next, uh, the date, uh, and we talked about this last week, too, uh, 94 to 96 A.D., um, and this is more important uh, in this book than, than nailing down a date in other books because, uh, because many people uh, want to say that it was written, that it had to be written before 70 AD. We talked about that last week. Do you guys remember why? That's the downfall of Jerusalem. And it had, and he, he never mentions it. Mm -hmm. So he figured it had to predate it then. Yeah, so for, so for what we call partial preterists, um, the, those who... Uh, like R.C. Sproul acknowledged the fact that Revelation is definitely supposed to be predictive prophecy. It had to have happened, and that, and they believe that the predictive prophecy was fulfilled at uh, the fall of Jerusalem, um, and, and they believe everything around that time, that's when it all was fulfilled. So to, uh, because they have such a high view of Scripture, partial preterists, um, uh, they they say it had to have been written before them because they can't deny that this is definitely predictive prophecy. So, um, so, so they need that. Partial preterists, most amillennialists recognize um, that the book has to be speaking of predictive prophecy um, and believe that that had to take place in, in AD 70. So if it was written after that, then it really would mess up their, their view because then it looks like John is, is being deceitful and writing about things that have already happened, like they're a vision of the future. And to their credit, they're like, that's just not, that's not how scripture is written. So they're, they're, they're rightly wanting to, to make sure that scripture is seen as the word of God and not denying predictive prophecies. There's full preterists who are the more liberal ones who are like, yeah, John was just writing about things he already saw because 
prophecy doesn't really happen. Um, that, that doesn't, so, so not them, but, but partial preterists, they needed to happen before AD 70. So a lot of our brothers in Christ who, who have that, and sisters in Christ who have that view, that hold to it there. However, most scholars place the writing of Revelation between A.D. 94 and 96 because, uh, because of some of the stuff we talked about last week, mainly because Irenaeus, the, uh, who's the disciple of Polycarp, who is the disciple of the Apostle John, um, wrote in his, uh, in his work against heresies uh, that John the Apostle wrote, his, uh, wrote the, the account of the Revelation from Patmos at the end of the reign of the Emperor Domitian. Uh, and, and we know Domitian reigned from 81 to 96. So uh, that, that's like the, the main, re and, and main reason. We also talked about some of the other ones. Uh, we know that the Church of Smyrna didn't exist during Paul's ministry, so it's like that is right on that 65, 70 AD. That's right. Uh, that, that's, that's really pushing it. Uh, it seems difficult to imagine that the Church of Laodicea uh, getting just so bad, uh, getting so bad as it is right here, three years after Paul wrote to the Colossians, which is a kind of a sister right next to Laodicea. Um, also, John's letter to the Ephesians or, uh, in, in, in Revelation would have been about the same time as Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's hard to imagine how Paul would not mention uh, the, the Nicolaitan heresy, uh, a, a problem that would have probably been in its very, very earliest forms uh, around that, that time. And then also an earthquake, uh, which absolutely destroyed Laodicea in 61 AD, and it's hard to imagine it becoming as rich and prosperous as it is described in chapter 3. In fact, if you, when you look at the letter to, uh, in 317, to Laodicea, says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It really does look like, like um, Jesus is confronting their, their, uh, a prideful attitude about their, a uh, proud attitude about their, their riches, which you would expect from, uh, from someone who had just kind of made their way up out of financial ruin and, and to, to become more prosperous. Uh, but for it to have happened in that short a time, I mean, back then they can't, they can't rebuild like that. They can't rebuild after an earthquake in just a couple of months. It's not like L.A. Um, so, uh, so again, this is a this is a bit more important uh, than than most of the than most of the dates that we talk about. Understanding this one as between 94 and 96 A.D. because it really does. If you have that understanding, it really does. Um, lead to a, a futurist uh, premillennial view, or, or that's one of the ones that it, it leads to easily, is that. So uh, next in your outline, I have recipients. Uh, recipients, and I, want, I put that down because I, I want you to put the church, um, and, and just the church, because uh, there is a direct sense in which the recipients of Revelation are the, the seven churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. Um, but when you take a closer look at the book as a whole, uh, the, uh, at the recipients, and the way that the letters are organized, it becomes obvious that John intended for this book to be an encouragement to all of the church, to every church. Um, and if you, have a, like if you have a map in the back of your Bible... That shows uh, uh, Jewish and Christian communities in late antiquity. That would be a good one. Let me know one of the 
Jerusalem and temple times, that wouldn't work. Uh, but if you look down in there, uh, you can see uh, the, uh, so it's right on, um, uh, 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 right on the um, east coast of the Aegean Sea, you can see these churches. Um, and, you, and, and you can see them, there's Ephesus, um, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, Colossae, my, and, and Laodicea. Mine doesn't have, um, which one didn't I say? Smyrna. And, but, but some of yours might. But if you, if you have them all in there, you can see that it's, like a, it's, it's a really natural kind of circular route in, in the right order going around and then coming back uh, to the Aegean Sea. Um, so it, it uh, you have so so you can see that it's um, uh, they're organized in such a way that it moves in a circular road that you would take, and there's kind of that idea in there that then that these churches kind of represent all the churches that you could come across along the way, spreading it. Uh, some people make a big deal about the fact that it's a circle, and circles represent completion. I don't know necessarily about that, um, but. What does represent completion for sure is the number seven and the fact that, Je that Jesus uses seven churches. Um, and then when you look at the seven letters, you also see a common refrain starting in, in someone read chapter two, verse seven. Are you all open to Revelation? Um, someone read two, verse seven. Uh, there's a com that common refrain is found in all of the churches, all of these letters. Go he who, he who, oh, sorry. No, gotcha. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. So yeah, that's all. That's yeah. the only part yeah. I need to read. So you you see in there when when you see there's that common refrain. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So there's an understanding that. It's not just the church in Ephesus that's supposed to be reading this and, and hearing this. All the churches are supposed to see this, and that refrain is in all of them. Um, and we're going to talk about in just a second that the, the way the churches are organized uh, in here also, also points to or indicates that, that there's an overall message to the entire Church. So it's not just that there's a direct sense in which it's these seven churches, um, but it's clear as you kind of understand the book as a, as a whole that this is Christ's message to the church. Jesus' message to the church. And the purpose, okay, the purpose of the book of Revelation, all right, the purpose is so that we can make a mockery out of the faith once for all delivered to the saints by enabling us to make wild speculations about every major event that happens around us by making ridiculous connections to the symbols of this book in order to avoid our main responsibility to evangelize and disciple. Could you repeat that again? That is... Slower. That is not the purpose of this book. That is how... That is what this book is treated like. And so I, I just thought of that while I was writing and I was getting angry. Um, thinking about the purpose of this book and how no one even no one looks at it like this. This is how it's looked at as a mockery. Uh, let's let's make a mockery out of the faith once for all delivered to the saints by making all kinds of crazy guesses about dates and times and attaching symbols to every single thing that we see and to do anything we can just to avoid evangelism and discipleship, which is what we're supposed to be doing. No, that is not the purpose, to, despite how this book is treated. 
The purpose actually is uh, to encourage believers to faithfulness and to rebuke them concerning sin. And to encourage them to live in the light of the reality that God will be glorified through the demonstration of his justice and mercy and the way that he brings history to its consummation. All right. Uh, that is the purpose. You are supposed to read the book of Revelation and be kind of rebuked in your sin. And if you're, if you're not, uh, if you're slacking off, if you're not li living the way that, that Christ has called you to, to live, if you're not living in repentance and in obedience, and to be faithful, and then to remember and to be encouraged by the fact that God, uh, that God is bringing all things to an end, and Christ will return, and he will be glorified in the justice and the mercy that he demonstrates, that he shows during that time. Uh, that is the purpose. It's for us, not to, not to make, us, make us look stupid. Uh, uh, all right, the, okay, the theme, the theme of the book is the culmination of history. The theme of the book is the culmination of history. And this is the most appropriate way to end the Bible. When you read Revelation, you realize, you understand, this is the most appropriate way to end the Bible. And it does it by bringing in, it brings in so many pictures from all over the Bible and all over the Old Testament. You are, you're supposed to read the book with the mindset that this has to do with everything else that came before it, that it's all connected. You're so, you see all of the connections all leading, all they, they're all pointing to this. Um, this, this book, the uh, Revelation, has actually no direct quotes from the Old Testament, but it is by far the most dependent book in the New Testament on the Old Testament, because out of the 404 verses in Revelation, only 126 of them don't contain an allusion to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Out of the 404 verses in, in Revelation, only 126 do not contain an allusion to the Old Testament. All right. Outline I put on the back of your, um, of your handout. I'm not going to go through that. Um, but you can look at it. Um, uh, major themes. Uh, major themes are the glory of Jesus Christ. I've got three major themes. The glory of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God and the future work of God. The glory of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, and the future work of God. So, with all that in mind, with all that in mind, I want to uh, just um, remind you a little bit of, of just kind of the setting of this book. John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile there because he's been spreading the word. Um, uh, he, he'd been placed there uh, under the, the govern, uh, under the, the emperorship, is that how you say that, uh, of Domitian. 
um, during his persecution. So he had a persecution of Christians, um, which it wasn't as severe as, as Nero's persecution of Christians was, but it was more widespread. It was more uh, all-encompassing than Nero's persecution. Um, uh, Christians at this time were despised. Uh, and they were hated at that time for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and one of the main reasons was, was primarily because the leaders of the Jewish religion, um, who'd kind of worked out an agreement with, with Rome uh, to, uh, to, to be kind of a recognized religion, uh, they were pushing the Roman government to more and more harsh persecution of the Christians because the Roman uh, government was kind of a little bit like, ah, aren't they just Jewish? They, some of them like, they didn't understand. And then, so the, the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, the uh, Pharisees and stuff, like, no, they're not of us. Sick them. Throw them to lions. Um, anyway, so, so they're persecuting. You can see this trend. Uh, you can actually see that trend beginning all the way in the book of Acts. Yeah, that's what Paul was a part of when he was Saul. Um, not, they're, they're, they have more of a hatred for the Christians than, than the Romans do. Yeah, and you can see that in the, the crucifixion of Christ, uh, the difference between the way Pilate thought of them and the way the Jewish leaders thought of them. And you can see that, that trend all the way back in the book of Acts, even, even in the death of Christ. Uh, they, uh, again, Judaism was an officially recognized religion, unlike Christianity, Christianity and there's just a bunch of mysteries surrounding it. They, um, Christians didn't participate in emperor worship, uh, they, they wouldn't recognize the Caesar as the ultimate authority. They wouldn't pray to him. They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. And they would not offer sacrifices to him. And the Romans considered that, and the Romans actually called the Christians, so when you're looking at early uh, uh, history, the Romans referred oftentimes to the Christians as atheists because they worshipped an invisible God. Um, and they, they just, for them, that was just, this is atheism. They're not worshiping any statues. Um, and so they, they were very confused by it. Um, they were, uh, Christians were considered cannibals because of a misunderstanding about what communion was. Um, and uh, we, we actually have letters from various leaders in Roman government from around that time that ind indicate how bad uh, the, uh, the spread of Christianity was for Rome economically. Like they were like, this is, uh, like they wouldn't care so much about it, uh, except for it was bad as, as they were, people were coming to Christ, no one was buying sacrificial animals. No one, they, they weren't buying idols anymore. Um, and, and Christians refused to, per, to participate in all their forms of immoral entertainment um, that the rest of their society loves so much. And so, so all of those reasons, um, and we don't have as many details about exactly what happened under uh, uh, Domitian's uh, official persecution of Christians. Uh, but we know that it was bad enough to get John exiled uh, and, and for a, a Christian named Antipas from, that we see in 2.13 to be put to death uh, in Pergamum. Um, it, it is quite safe to say, at the very least, while it might not have been as bad for Christians as it was under Nero, 
that it still is a lot worse for them than it was for us having to hear, you know, having to hear people say happy holidays to us instead of Merry Christmas. Like, Fire from heaven, Lord. No, it's not. It's not that in, boy, in Kentucky, that was such a big deal. Like, that was the mark of, of uh, like, it was, you might as well have 666 on your head if you say happy holidays. Yes. And, and we're being oppressed. And I yell back, Merry Christmas at them. I'm like, that's good. That, that's, that'll, that'll win them over. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so persecution wasn't probably as bad as Nero, but it was still pretty bad. And there's, um, uh, again, like we said, John was most likely, it looks like, boiled in oil. Uh, which is pretty bad. So he's got. So he's not. So John is ninety. This ninety-year-old-ish man on Patmos, covered head to toe in, in probably oil burns. Um, and and so just think of what's going on. So this is 90, 94, 96 A.D. is at least thirty years or so since since Peter and Paul have both been martyred. So he's been three decades now, and it's been really just, just him. And, and at this point, he is the last of the apostles. Um, it's been almost—he uh, was one of. The, it's, it's been almost six decades, sixty years, since Jesus was walking the earth. Um, just think, sixty years at this point, his memories of, of Jesus—they're um, they're, just—they're kind of. You know they're they're becoming more distant. Uh, if you remember the last time that G, that John saw Jesus uh, in in you know Acts one, that two angels appeared and they promised him in the crowd there that Jesus would return the same way that he saw him leave. And so after that, you know the excitement they had when they left there, but it's been it's been almost sixty years since then. And he's got, and, and that's all past now. Um, so you, you've got to think that John might be at this point experiencing some confusion. Uh, everyone else who, who heard that promise is, is most likely dead. He doesn't, doesn't, doesn't know them. Um, the, the miraculous works that were such a, a mark of the early church and the beginning of the in Acts, those those have stopped. We see that those are beginning to to cease. Toward, even in Paul's ministry, as he's talking, and in some of his letters to Timothy, there's not the the miracles aren't spreading. Uh, they're not going on as much. Um, uh, the, the church is being attacked through persecution from the outside, and there's false teaching everywhere rising up from the inside. And this is the setting. So this is where John is. This is the setting that, 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 that's going on, that's surrounding John, when Jesus shows up to him and uh, in, in front of him on, on Patmos. Right? And so this is, um, uh, and so th- this is what happens. Uh, he, uh, he says, um, I, John, verse 9, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So, so, so this is John. He's here for the so 60 years since he's heard the voice of Christ. And now, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So this is where the, the vision. So there's a vision that begins here and goes all the way to the middle of chapter 22. Um, and, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So this is, so, so again, first he hasn't seen him. And now, now this, is, this is what he's seen. This is what John has seen. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, can you imagine then what, what John is thinking here at this point? It might have seemed like, uh, like, like Jesus um, at this point is it like, like he's forgotten so much and it doesn't seem like things are going the way that, that it seemed like they should go after, the, after Christ's ascension. And the angels say, he's coming back. He's coming back. And then 60 years of, of persecution and the church is being corrupted from the inside. And, and what's going on? And now Christ returns to the last living apostle with a message to give to his church. And it's a message that shows that, that far from abandoning them, that the, the Lord uh, Jesus, the Lord of the church, walks among them, right? That's where we see he walks among them, his church, and he knows all that they do. Uh, so so he, he, he shows up, he tells John, he gives John this message, and then he goes into chapters two and three, uh, which are a reminder to the church uh, then and the church now uh, and, and uh, to all of us. And it's a witness that, that Jesus stands as a witness to who we are, to what we are doing um, at, at all points in time. That, that's what's going on here. And I want to point out that the structure of these letters, this is what I mentioned earlier, the structure of these letters indicates that they are, uh, that this is a book that is for all the churches, that is for the entire church. And I mentioned this like about a year and a half, I don't know, I, did, I, I preached through, I did two sermons on Revelation 2 and 3, um, and I mentioned this there, but there's a, a chiastic or chiastic structure in the way that these letters are organized in the, in the, in the seven churches. That means... Um, 
If you remember, I've talked about this before. The idea is from the Greek letter uh, chi, which looks like an X, just looks just like an X. And the idea is that something from the, the, the things at the beginning and the things at the end are pointing to a center point in the middle. And that's where the, uh, that's where the emphasis is. Um, and, uh, and, and so th there's a, there's a uh, chiasm, a chiasm here that's recognized by, by many commentators. Um, and so if you, if you look at the content of each of these letters, this is what you see. You have on, uh, you have on one side is the, the church in Ephesus, and on the other side is the church in Laodicea. And, and then there are uh, two churches of the five churches, which are, which are good churches, or, well, I shouldn't say good churches. They're churches that, that, uh, that Jesus doesn't say anything against them. Um, and then you have the churches of Smyrna and, uh, and, oh, wait, no, sorry, the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Those are those churches. But then there's the three churches in the middle. So if you look, if your Bible opens to, uh, on just one page, that would be helpful, but mine doesn't. Uh, you got Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis uh, in the middle. And, this, and so those are the ones that kind of, uh, that are kind of emphasized. Um, uh, focus the, the, the attention is focused on those three churches uh, because there, there's uh, Ephesus, Laodicea, and then there's these two churches that there's nothing against them, the three churches in the middle. Uh, and of the five churches, so of the five churches that have something to repent of, it is, um, the church in Ephesus is clearly portrayed as the one that is as the healthiest, even though they have something to repent of. And on the other end of the, spe the spectrum is Laodicea, which is clearly portrayed as the worst of the churches. Uh, there's nothing at all, there, there's nothing that is commended in Laodicea. There's no reason to think that there are actually any faithful believers in that church at all. And Christ is portrayed in here as standing uh, outside, if you remember, of the church of Laodicea, though the one that closed the door on him. Um, uh, so, so you have uh, the best of the churches that has something to repent of on one side and the worst of the churches uh, on the other side. And you have the two good churches, again, slotted on each side, either side with the framing the middle three. And so what you can see here when, when you look at them all, when you study them all, is you see this clear, there's this digression, there's this slide in the middle three churches. It's showing a path from Ephesus, which starts out with, with a tinge, with a hint of something's going wrong there, to Laodicea, which is there's no one faithful in this church. There's nothing good about this church, but it still calls itself a church. Um, so, so you can see a, you, you, you see a slide, you see a movement from uh, this uh, Ephesus to Laodicea and these other three churches that show uh, that, that it's getting worse and, and worse. Um, and if you look actually, so, so if you look at chapter 2, uh, verse 14, if you look at, so this is one of the first of those middle churches. If you look in Pergamum, it says, um, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Um, so it, uh, just, just the point is, you have some there. So there's some there who are erring. There's some there who are following in the way of Balaam. And then if you go to Thyatira, you see 2.24, he says, uh, uh, 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So, so now when you see the rest of you uh, coming out of verse 23, indicating that there's a, a good chunk of people who have fallen away, and then there's a rest of you who haven't. And then if you look in uh, 3, 4 at that last church in, in Sardis, uh, the last of the middle churches, he says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. So, so it goes from there's a few of you who are bad to there's a good group of you who are to there's just a few of you who are still good. And, 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 and moving all the way to Laodicea where there's, there's nothing left that's, that's any good. Um, so by the time you get to Sardis, you have a church that Jesus says is dead with only a few faithful followers remaining in it. And we see in these churches, uh, what we see in them is an increasing acceptance uh, and toleration of false teaching and of worldly influence and a decreasing ability to remember and to hold fast to the gospel and to write doctrine. We see both of them. So we see an increase in the acceptance of false teaching, an increase in, 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 in uh, embracing the world, and a decrease in, um, in the ability to uh, uh, hold fast and, and to embrace right doctrine. Uh, we see Pergamum in 2.13. We see that Pergamum, it says Pergamum is holding fast and not denying the faith. And then in Thyatira, we're, we're told that they need to they need to hold fast to what they have. So they're starting to, to let go. And in Sardis, we're told that they have forgotten what they received and heard. Uh, and that's the last step before you become a uh, lukewarm, nothing church like Laodicea, which is the church with uh, that there is absolutely nothing that God, that, that Christ commends in Laodicea. Um, even though it thinks it's fine, even though it's the one that thinks it's fine, uh, it's really not even a, a church at all. So, uh, at the very least, I hope you can see a little bit that there's a definite decrease in faithfulness as you go from each church that needs to repent to the next one. And God intended for each church then to read all of these letters and to take the warnings and examples found in each one seriously. So when you see that, that each one has an individual message and then an overall message to the church, you can also see that this is a message, that this is a book that's for us. Um, so remember, each of these individual letters has that one line in it that we talked about earlier. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning it's, it's for us to hear. It's plural. Um, uh, it's a plural. All, all the churches are supposed to hear and understand the message given to each of these individual churches. And you can see that one of the main reasons uh, for this would be to help all churches to be able to recognize the path that leads to becoming a church like Laodicea. To avoid that. So, so chapters 2 and 3 then, uh, the letters to the churches, there is this, there's a great warning in there about, about the danger of sliding into apostasy. And, and there's an encouragement uh, to, be, to be vigilant, like, like Smyrna in Philadelphia. Uh, Jesus Christ is in the midst of his church and he is watching and he sees what's going on. So contrary to what, so 60 years since Christ has ascended, 
ascended. Contrary to some of the stuff that John and, and those in the churches around him might be thinking, Christ is still in his church, and he knows what's happening, and he, he knows exactly what's happening. He knows every little thing that's going on there. Um, just because he hasn't been there and it hasn't been working out the way that they thought it would, it doesn't, uh, the fact that, that Jesus Christ knows exactly what's going on in, in all of his churches uh, demonstrates that they, there's some serious something to be taken seriously here. Um, so, so John then follows this warning, uh, the, these warnings from these churches, uh, by giving us now the reason why we need to take it seriously. And that's, that's what we get to in the next thing. So we see uh, Jesus points out places where, where, where people need to repent, repentance that needs to be, that needs to happen. And then he takes immediately in four one. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And then he immediately takes us to the throne room in heaven, just in case you're tempted to not take the repentance thing seriously. Here's where we need to be. Um, so, uh, and 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 the way that the revelation is broken down, chapters four through sixteen um, are typically, or six through sixteen are typically kind of we we refer to those as the, the tribulation period, that the seventieth week of Daniel nine twenty seven. Not going to go into extreme detail on that, um, and but there's within premillennialism, there's three different views of of. Uh, of how the tribulation works out, there's a uh, the the view that there's a rapture, uh, what's called pre-tribulation, premillennialism, a rapture before those seven years where the church is removed from the earth, and um, and then the judgments happen, and some people come to Christ uh, as they see all of these things happening, and then there's the mid-tribulation view, which is there's a rapture of the church midway through the tribulation before the, the, the worst part of the tribulation. And then there's post-tribulation premillennialism, which is uh, the second coming and the, and the rapture that's mentioned in, in Thessalonians. Um, uh, uh, is Both of those are the, are the same way. We're not going to go into to, to those too much um, because the purpose of this book is not for us to think through that that much. Um, so uh, the tribulation time, though, it does take up a huge chunk of uh, of this book. So you, there's a there's a sense in which chapters four through sixteen are all about the tribulation period, this time of extreme trial and turmoil that takes place on the earth. I have in on the back in your outline this little that little Revelation four one through sixteen twenty one kind of extra outline, I guess, that shows kind of the way that it's, uh, you can see the judgments um, kind of as a, as a spiral almost. So there's kind of a little bit of rep repetition to the way they work, um, uh, but, but we won't go deep into that. Right now, I want to point out what's going on in Revelation 4. Revelation 4 and 5, which is, again, it's taking place right after he's, he's told, he's called his church to repentance. He's called the, these churches to repentance. And after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So... 
And then goes on to say, I'm just going to, yeah. Um, he, he goes on to say, at once, I, I was in, okay, here, here's what I want you to do. Just listen to me read this. And as, I, as I'm reading it, you, at, when we're done with it, I'm going to read chapter four. And then at the end of chapter four, you tell me what the main point of chapter four is, all right? At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All right, lots of weird-sounding things in there. What is Revelation 4 about? Worship. The throne of God. Worship of God, right? Anyone have any other different meanings? Yeah. Glory of Christ. Glory of Christ. I was going to say the glory of God. Glory of God. Anyone else? I'm just depicting what it talks about in verse 9 and 11. Um, just depicting the glory and honor and worthiness of Christ. Yeah, it, exactly. It's not. It's not re- when you're asking what the what this chapter is about. And this is one of the ones with lots of stuff that's like ah, I don't know. You don't need a bunch of charts and people pondering about all of these different things. There's but there's been, you know, books and books and books written about who the, the elders are, and I, you know, have my opinions about that, and 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 and, and so, but but that's not the point of chapter four of Revelation. The, all all of those elders and all of those weird-looking creatures are doing this. They're they're, they're about one thing: pointing to the throne pointing to the throne and the glory of the one who sits on the throne. We can speculate about the elders and the creatures all we want, but they are not the point of Revelation. So when people say, eh, Revelation is whatever, it's, it's too confusing. And granted, there's a lot of 
imagery and stuff that, that we that, that's a little difficult to understand. But you can read through the book and and get the main points and and see what it's about. Um, so it, it's that, and then and then so so yeah. Chapter 4, they're pointing to the throne. Chapter 5, verses 1 through... Someone read chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, but read it like it's, you know, the word of God and really, really important. Yeah, Bruce. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. All right, there. Um, so right there, so in that section that Bruce just read, um, so, so there is some stuff we need to interpret there, but it's not so much because it's, hugely symbolic, but uh, uh, you kind of just have to have an understanding of scrolls back then and seals. Um, what, did, what does, just based on this, can anyone guess, or maybe your knowledge from the past, what does the scroll represent here? It's like the, I think John MacArthur says, like the title deed to the earth. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Yeah, it's, a, it's essentially all of history. Right? All, all of the, the culmination of history, all, all to God's plan for history. And, on, and the fact that it's written on the front and the back, that there's, a, there's a key there. That you, that's, that's more we need to understand that from. Uh, front and the back, was that, that's the way scrolls with, that were a deed were written. So it is like the understanding that's a title deed. It represents ownership of history and of the <coughs> earth. Um, so... Uh, on front and on back. So we have to have that understanding a little bit of what that is and why this is so significant. And then it has seven seals on it, um, which are not like when I was a kid. Like, I'm going to... I don't understand this. This is a weird book. Not those kind of seals. Uh, seven seals. Who knows what that is? A seal from back in that time. Piece of wax with some kind of a symbol on it that seals yeah. the, the paper as it, as it folds over. Mm -hmm. And what was the implication of the the, the symbol? Does anyone remember? Oh, like a signet ring? Yeah, yeah, like a signet ring. The, the understanding was there's a symbol. It's sealed piece of wax. Uh, wax seals it with it, and there's a symbol on it. And only the person uh, who is authorized to open that seal with that that that, that has that uh, symbol on it. Is allowed to. So if you're delivering a scroll that's sealed, and um, and you get it to the person, and the seal is broken, then you're executed because unless you can match your signet ring to that one, you're you have no authority to open that up. So uh, the understanding is there's seven seals, and we just talked about the the seven representing what. Completeness. Completion, perfection. So it's, it's, it's sealed. The seals are to ensure that they could only be opened by one person. So the scroll, which represents the, the, the culmination of, of history, the deed to uh, history, the deed to the earth, is, is there. And it says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly why does John weep if, if we have that understanding why, why would he why would he weep 
Then, because no one's worthy, no one can open it. Hopeless. Yes, it's hope. This is this is exactly what he might have been worried about going into this vision. Remember, why? while he's on the island for, for 60 years, or not for 60 years, while he's been on the island and, and hasn't seen Christ for 60 years, and things seem to be deteriorating. Things seem to be getting worse for Christ and his church. Um, so so he's, that, he's weeping loudly because this is, this is right back to it. Is there really no way out of this? Isn't this, and you know, isn't that, isn't that how, how we feel sometimes? That we're tempted to think that um, this, this world just doesn't look like God is in control. This cannot be part of the plan. Things are just progressing the same way they do every day, year in, year out. Things just seem to be going the way that they go. And this, and that, that feeling, that, that's the reason why we need this book. So we aren't tempted to think along those lines, but we recognize that the events in this book represent a certain future. A certain future. Because as John is having this experience, and then verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Right, so there's this, oh, right there, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, that's Old Testament imagery reminding us you know, that this, this has been, don't worry, John, this has been God's plan for all of eternity since back, to, to get to this point, even in, back in the Old Testament, to bring about the end of history, we needed to bring, or, uh, God had to bring Jesus Christ on the scene because he is the one who is able to open the scroll. He, 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 he is the one who is able to open the scroll. And then we get verses 6 through 14, uh, which says, uh, someone else, someone else read that, or I'm just going to read okay. it. But you have to read it like, this is the throne room of heaven. Go ahead. <laughs> A little pressure there. Yep. <laughs> Scary place. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Is that where you want me to go? Uh, no, go all the way to 14. Okay. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea 
and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. All right, so what is the point of that passage? Again, lots of weird imagery, but what is the point? Everything is going to worship. Yeah. To worship who? Specifically, Christ. Jesus Christ. 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 Jesus Christ, who is worthy. And why is he worthy? Because he can open the seven seals. He can open the seven seals. And what? And, and he's the one who's worthy to open the seven seals. He can do it. And what What gives him the ability? Or what? why can he? Because he was slain. Yeah. Rose again. He's, he was slain and he rose again. And he's called the Lamb of the Seven Eyes, meaning, you know, perfection, all seen. Seven horns, not like a, a horn you blow, but a horn is uh, like representative, representative of power, uh, all powerful. And, and he um, goes and he's able to take the scroll from the right hand of God, the Father, right? And, and take it and open it. And, and he's worthy to open it. And everyone is is praising him because of he because of his death and resurrection to, that redeems people that redeems people from every tribe and language and people and nation and nation Jesus Christ is worthy this is this is plain to see as you read chapter 5 the atoning work of Christ on the cross is and will be a cause for worship in heaven Right? It is for, forever. Uh, this, this is what we see here happening is the, is the, is the culmination, the, the end of, uh, the, the, or the beginning of the end of the promise of the gospel. Um, we see in that section it talks about the prayers of the saints being a part of this. And, and notice that Jesus is receiving the same worship from the same people as, uh, the same beings as the one sitting on the throne. Um, so after, after all of this, we're going to skip a whole bunch of chapters because we don't have time. But, but in chapters 6 through 16, those are all of the, that's the judgments. I put that little outline in there. There's a lot in there that uh, we're not going to go into. And, but you can see that cycle that, I, that we talked about and you can, that it kind of has in there. And we see judgment. What we see in there is judgment after judgment interspersed with uh, praises to God for all he has done and is doing as he's, as he's judging the earth. We just see more and more, like more and more of these types of, uh, of sayings. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and was, uh, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Um, uh, chapter 15, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So all these judgments are taking place, and, and, and we're meant to see a connection between the judgments and the throne. I'm not going to look at it, but, but there's chapter 4, verse 5, that talks about the thunder and lightning coming from the throne 
and then in um, uh, in 8, 5, 11, 19, and 16, 18, in, in the last uh, in the last of each of the plagues, it, it talks about um, thunder and lightning. There's all this connection to what's coming uh, from the, that it's coming from the throne. In chapter 17 and 18, we see the final judgment against the kingdom uh, of Antichrist and those who stand in opposition to Christ. Um, in 19, 1 through 10, we see that the joy of the great multitude as Christ is now uh, returns. And in 11 through 16, we see the, the second coming, which again, when you read it in conjunction with uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you read all of John 1, 1 through 18, and then you have that, the, the first advent, and then remembering now that this same John is now writing this, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a, a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So... Um, and so, you, so you see, again, you see that. That's, that's the second coming, the second advent. Um, chapter 20 is the millennium, which we talked about last week, where Christ reigns on earth uh, for a thousand years. And then before the final rebellion and final judgment at the great white throne, in the end of chapter 20, which we're all, chapter 20, verses 11 and 15, that's the great white throne judgment. Um, and then, and, and then we get to this in, in 21, 1 through 4. So after all the judgments, the millennium, the final rebellion and defeat of Satan, the judgment at the great white throne, and then we get to 21, 1 through 4. Someone want to read that and read it like it's the best news you've ever read. <laughs> Go ahead, Lori. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Ah, this, is, this is, so here we see now, after this final judgment, that the, the beginning of what is the, the end, the culmination of the entire Bible, right? Look that right there in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's what we have been waiting for since Genesis 3. 
as the, the full and final picture of what the gospel accomplishes. Right there, and it's in a way, and we're going to talk about even greater than it would have been had nothing happened in Genesis 3. Right, and um, so, so, and so you look down at verses 5 through 8, and it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring uh, of the water of life without payment. And then it says, what, the one who conquers, right? It's not the one who goes to church regularly. It's not the, the one who's a good person. It's not the one who's, who, who lets go and lets God. It's not the, not the one who properly discerns blood moves. It's the one who conquers. And what does that remind us of from this book? Christ. Right? Christ. I, I, you know what? We didn't actually read them. So I'm just going to... Uh, if you... It should remind us, if, you've, if I actually made you read the whole thing, which we should have, in chapters 2 and 3, um, actually just flip back there, stay, stay, in, stay in chapter 21. Um, but what you notice in chapter, in, at the end of every single line, at the end of every single letter to the church, is this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will and then gives a, a different, different blessing. So this brings us back to, and it reminds us of the of the churches be, being called to repentance. To the one who conquers, that's what it says back in 21. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so, so, so the one who conquers is the obedient, repentant church, the one who proves that Christ is their Lord by taking his warnings seriously and obeys and repents. Repents and obeys. That's who the one who conquers. Um, It's not saying that that, that's what saves you, but that's a description of those who are being saved. They're conquerors. They're not ones who just you know what I accepted Jesus when I was 10 and so I'm good. It's my fire insurance. That's not what it is. Those who are the church, those who this heritage belongs to are those who are conquerors. Those who repent and obey. Um, In in contrast to verse 8, but as for the cowardly, opposite of conquerors, cowardly, the, the, those who don't conquer, those who, may, uh, who might just stay in those churches forever without changing, you know, feeling like, I'm good, I'm in a church. Uh, they, 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 they claim to have some kind of faith, but look, it says their faith, the cowardly and the faithless, that they've got the same faith, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those who claim to have faith but refuse to conquer, refuse to live in repentance and obedience, are really no different than the faithless. They're the cowardly. 
to live lives of repentance and obedience. That's, that's what marks the true church. That's what those who take the warnings that Jesus gave to his churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then <laughs> verses 9 through 21 are a depiction of the new Jerusalem. Right, verses 9 through 21, I just want to point out, without reading it all, that the final state of mankind is in a city and not a garden. <coughs> it's a city, not a garden. The grand purposes of God uh, is not to make us into a bunch of individuals running around outside enjoying the creation um, and, and being close to God that way. No, it's to, to save us and bring us together into a great city. The constant reminder, the great city will be the constant reminder that he has saved a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And that is cause for more glory. So if you remember back in chapters 4 and 5, the, the beginning, they're worshiping the one on the throne because, of his, because he's the creator. And in then chapter 5, they're worshiping the lamb because he was slain. So, so God is glorified more in the fact that he redeemed a sinful people than if sin had never entered into his creation in the first place. And we see this in the fact that he doesn't restore us to the garden. He brings us together in a city. The fact that we're in a, a city shows us that even on this earth, the place where, we, even on this earth then, the place where we see God best is not up in the mountains, but it's with his, among his redeemed people. It's in the church. That's where we see him the best. That's where we can experience, that's where we can get a little closer actually to what heaven is than we are now within the church. Not going up to the mountains. That might get us closer to the garden. A few, not as much sin. But closer to what heaven is, is in the church. Uh, in, in the description of the New Jerusalem, we see all kinds of imagery, again, that reminds us of Israel. But then what's awesome is, even in all this imagery that reminds us of the New Jerusalem, in verse 22 it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no need for a temple anymore. No, there's no special protection uh, needed because of what, what we go on to read in, in verse uh, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detest detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no need for a temple. We will be with God. He will be our God. We will be His people in a way that, that Israel never, ever, ever could have expected or seen. And they could only have uh, dreamed of, wished for. And then on to chapter 22 um, in, in verses 1 through 5. So here, 1 through 5 is the end of the, of the vision. <coughs> then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. 
but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. Verse 4, that, that is that thing that Moses longed for. That, that, and, and what the, all of the law, all of the Old Testament told us was impossible. God has made possible through the work of Christ on the cross. We will see his face. Uh, it should kill us. That's unbelievable. That is coming. Then the vision ends. Verses 6 through 21. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What does it mean to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Obedience. You have to be obedient to it. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. What else? So. It could just say obey if it wanted to obey. But obedience is in there with when we're thinking of keep. Keep, hold on to it. Yeah, hold on to hold it. Hold trust. Hold trust. trust. Remember, remember this. Right? this. This is what our response to this book is. But we need to keep it. We need to, to act like this is all true. Like, like we really believe this is, this is going to happen. It says... Um, he goes on to say, uh, Behold, I am coming soon, this is verse 12, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without Christ. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Jesus Christ is returning. That is the message of this book. And he is bringing his recompense with him. We don't know when this is happening. Could be tomorrow. We might not see 2019. Wouldn't that be awesome? If you are one of those people... Uh, who has been lulled into thinking that the, that the way you live and what you live for right now doesn't really matter, like some of these people in these churches, because just everything just keeps on going like it has. 
just the next day and the next day. Uh, the message of this book is to rock us out of that. One day, the, the sky is going to split open. And then, have you thought about this? Then there'll be no more time left to do anything that's of any consequence. Like any of the things that we can choose to do that will actually, uh, that, that actually um, make a difference when it comes to our eternal state. There'll be no time left to do any of that. All the things that you can do that will matter for eternity can only be done right now. So let's keep the message of this book and be found faithful, long to be found as faithful conquerors when he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for the words in it. Thank you for the message of it. I, I just uh, pray against, um, I want to pray against uh, the tendency that we all have, and I think that is truly a, a satanic temptation to not think about this book because it's confusing. The message of this book um, is so powerful and so needed for us in this day and age. It's so easy to forget, to, to be distracted by everything that the news says is so important. And all of these dangers that it sees come, maybe, maybe little dangers that we see in our lives or, or uncertainties we see in our future, and to give all of our time and energy and care and prayer to those things. When we can know for certain that this is the final outcome. Christ is coming soon. And help us, to, help us to live in a way that acknowledges that we really believe this and that it could happen at any moment. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.